Well, here we go. Part three of four. Next week, uh, we're going to be wrapping up this series as uh, we're in the study of Colossians, talking about unrivaled, how our God is unrivaled. And uh, um, before we jump in, I forgot yet another thing I wanted to mention um, during worship. I was a little bit... uh, uh, scattered there when, when we were starting off there, but uh, I wanted to also mention last week we brought to the church a challenge. We said we are a church uh, of contributors, not just of uh, people that just are receiving. We're not just here just to uh, consume, but we contribute, that we pour in. And I challenged us that we are looking for people to step up and say, I'm going to serve in children's ministry. And for some, that is like stepping way out. But can I tell you that in one week we had four new leaders step forward and say, I'm ready to serve in children's ministry. That's awesome. That's awesome. But I just want to say this. I'm challenging you, church. We need more. We need more. We're believing God that that there are going to be families with so many children that need um, to be poured into, that we're looking for these teams to grow. So if you have not yet signed up, if God has been working on you, I pray that he bothers you all week like a pebble in your shoe, like you just can't take care of it till you call and be like... Charity, get me on your team. I don't know what's going on, but I need to serve. So if you're not yet serving, if you're not yet on a team, we have opportunities. That's why we run two services, okay? We have two services so you can attend one and so you can serve in one. And it doesn't mean you have to serve every single week. You might be once a month, you might be twice a month. Maybe you're someone that has the capacity to say, I'm ready to serve often. Use me as often as you need. But we are looking to grow this team. So if that's you, step out. Step out and trust God. Maybe you feel like this is over your head. You're like, I just don't have the experience. I don't know. Trust God and trust our team, too, that we will not put you in situations to fail. We are going to line you up with people that set you up for a win, that set you up so you step in with confidence. So I encourage you on our connection cards at the end of the service, I'll remind you, let us know on your connection card you want to serve in, in, our, in our ministry. Specifically, we're looking to grow this kid's ministry. Let us know on that connection card. It's a great ministry. Okay, moving on. Jumping into the Word. Colossians chapter 3. I entitled this message, Fashion Week. Because I just love Fashion Week. I don't, I don't even know when Fashion Week is. I'm going to be honest with you. I, um, I don't know if that's a specific time or if that's like the Oscars or something. But uh, it felt appropriate. So we're calling it Fashion Week, okay? Um, and so hopefully at, by the end of this service, it'll make sense why. And if not, you'll be like, that was weird. I don't know why he did that. But, uh, but I entitled this message Fashion Week. And so um, we're going to just dig into the word together here. Open your Bibles with me. Get out your smartphones, things like that. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So starting with verse 1, Paul says this, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all His glory. Wow, that's a cool section right there. And so when we, when we look at the, the Pauline letters, the epistles written by Paul, he follows a typical pattern as he writes letter, these letters. He opens with, it's like, did you guys in school take how to write a formal letter? I, I did that, and I write very few formal letters. I write a lot of very curt emails now. But uh, we used to have, like, how to write a, a proper formal letter. You open with, like, an opening, you know, dear or, you know, 
sirs or madam and, and whatnot. He opens his letters with like a greeting. He says hi to all the folks. Say hi to Priscilla. Give a pat on the back to this person, that person. Wave to people. This is his greeting to everybody. Then he jumps into a section that is doctrinal teaching. He's teaching good doctrine. This is how we should understand what we should know, what we should believe. And so he lays down doctrinal statements. And over the last two weeks, the last two chapters, it's been doctrine that he's been teaching. Good, solid doctrine. But then he makes a shift in his letters over to the practical application. It goes from the things we should know to how then it's lived out. And so today, as we get into chapter 3, we're getting into the application where the rubber meets the road. After all I've said to you, what does this actually mean in my life played out? And so um, so we're going to now take a look because Paul in chapters 1 and 2, as we talked about, he systematically explained how Jesus is the fullness of God. That Jesus has always been. He wasn't created. He wasn't just another of one of the lower case G gods. He was God himself. He has always been. And in him and through him all things live and move and have their being and exist. And there's nothing we need to add to Jesus. He doesn't have like a limited amount of power and we need to like supplement that somehow. Or there's not another teaching we need to bring in to help out Jesus. In the same way, it's not enough to just sprinkle Jesus into our life. Or it's not, we don't need to come in and say, I'm going to just uh, limit myself in everything I do and, and say and, can, and be involved with and limit my freedom because Jesus is enough. And so he teaches all this and then he ultimately is explaining that salvation comes through Jesus alone. But now he moves into this application. He's saying, with all of this in mind, look at how he, he opens this section. He says, since you have been raised. So with all of this in mind, since we've come and been raised to new life in Jesus, we are supposed to set our eyes and our sights on the realities of heaven. With all of what he talked about before, with all of this explaining the power and the deity and the strength and the might of Jesus, with all of this in mind, set your sights on the realities of heaven. The first thing Paul tells the Colossians church to do, he says, you need to get your head in the clouds. We need to get our head in the clouds. Now that's not normally a positive thing, right? When we say someone's got their head in the clouds, that normally means you're daydreaming when you shouldn't be. Um, when I was in fifth grade, our classroom was on the second floor and it had these beautiful windows that overlooked the playground. And I can't tell you how many lessons I lost by just watching because, you know, uh, what's, what's the song about it's five o'clock somewhere that, that's, uh, you know, that, you know, someone else is always having fun. Well, I was looking at the playground. I was like all day long, kids are on the playground. They just take turns, you know, and my turn is so short. And I just watched them playing. I was like, oh, all day long, kids are on the playground. And it was like my head was in the clouds. I was missing what I should have been paying attention to. So when we're talking about head in the clouds, we mean something different. We're talking about heavenly focus, right? When I say we need to have our head in the clouds, it means we can't lose sight of our priority, the kingdom things. Um, I love watching football, except for last night. We'll just wipe last night out. Of, last night didn't happen. Other than last night, I love watching football. It's a... It's, uh, it's a sport that I think I just have figured out. I armchair quarterback and coach like you wouldn't believe. I can, I could have led any team to a win yesterday that, uh, if only they had listened to me. But, uh, something that drives my knife, my, my wife nuts about football is, I, I just heard this. Did you know in a four hour game, I can sit there and watch from noon to 4 p.m., like half the day is gone. And, and in that four hours, do you know how much time they've calculated is actually an active gameplay? 11 to 18 minutes. Yeah, because the rest of the time the play clock is going and they're talking and they're and they're patting each other on the bottom and they're running around. 
11 to 18 minutes of actual gameplay. The rest is, is like commercials. And, 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 and so when, my, when I tell my wife, honey, there's only two minutes left. She's like, then I'll go to the mall. You know, like... Target, I'm sorry. Then I'll go to Target. I'll, I'll correct that. But in those 11 to 18 minutes of gameplay, it is absolute chaos. We see it neat and tidy on the screen, but when it's actually happening, it's absolute chaos. Chaos, you can go to, it's absolute chaos what's happening on the field. If you look at the referee cam, there are bodies flying everywhere. The people on this field are enormous. There are men on that field that are 350 pounds and can run faster than I can. There are, there are also players on that field that are smaller than I am, but are some of the fastest humans on earth. And they're playing the same game, running after the same ball, doing the same things. But when it's all happening, when all this is happening, it's absolute insanity. Because while we saw that video play, uh, there's a common term you'll hear announcers talk about when they're watching. They, they say, these players really need to maintain eye discipline, especially when they're talking about the defense. Need to maintain eye discipline. On offense, you may have a key or a read that you need to make. On a defender, you need to block. Um, maybe maybe there's a blitz coming. There's some kind of eye discipline you need there. Maybe it's the running back. You need to step up and, and make a block. Or on the other side of the ball, you may have a, a player or a gap that you're responsible for. And in almost every play when you watch football, there's the likelihood of a misdirection. In, 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 in the play, there's, there's pre-play movement, there's play action, there's a sweep, there's a lineman that may pull or crash down, they all may crash in a certain direction. But your job, no matter how convincing the play may seem, no matter how sure you are that in that uh, RPO option he handed it off, your responsibility is to stay in your lane. To mind your gap, to have eye discipline that says, no matter what's going on, I'm not going to be deceived by the moment. I'm going to, I'm not going to get caught up by the window dressing of what's going on. I'm keeping my eye discipline. And, uh, and, and, and the, the commentators will often call it pre-play eye candy. It's all kinds of movement and things going on that want to pull you away from what you should be doing. Paul is coming to the church and he's pleading with them saying, keep your eyes where they need to be. This world is full of eye candy. This world is full of things that would try to draw you away. Say, look at this. Look over here. Look over here. The devil wants nothing more than to draw our eyes away from heavenly things. And he's saying, keep your eye discipline. Keep your eyes on heavenly things. We need to focus on the realities of heaven, Paul asks. And I was telling Hosanna about this point yesterday. She's like, so tell me about your message. And I told her the point, And I was like, I'm trying to explain it to her. And she said, yeah, it's kind of like you steer where you stare. And I was like, oh man, why are you not writing this message? That's so good. You steer where you stare. That, that's even got great alliteration. How many of you have ever been driving down the road and something really interesting is out to the right? Maybe you see a deer or something like that. You're like, look, elk! And before you know it, you're on the rumble strip. Because where your attention goes, that's where you go. And Paul sees this. But when we have heaven as our central focus, we default naturally towards heavenly things. If heaven is in our eyes, if heaven is in our vision, and we keep that discipline, guess what? Things are suddenly going to be that God's business becomes our business. That, that, that God's priorities become our priorities. The self-help guru Tony Robbins, and I don't like to often quote Tony Robbins in a message, but he said this, he said, where focus goes, energy flows. And that's true. Where our focus goes, that's where our energy is going to go. Our passion is going to go. Our desires are going to go. Where we take our resources and pump it into that. When we're passionate about something, when our vision is on it, that's where it all flows. So Paul says, first and foremost, we need to keep our head in the clouds. 
Keep our mind on heavenly things. So, so the, question, the first question we need to ask is, what, what have I been looking at? Where, what has been filling my mind? What do I spend my ti- time daydreaming about? What do I spend my time worrying about? Ooh. What do I invest my worries on? Where are most of my conversations? What are they mostly centered on? Great ways and metrics to measure where our eyes are. Is my head in the clouds or is my head in the clouds? So Paul goes on then in verse 5. He says, so put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. I like that language, lurking. He says, put to death the sinful earthly things that are lurking within you. It's very simple. The next thing he says we need to do is kill sin. Kill it. He says you need to be ruthless with our sin. Don't mess with it. Don't pander to it. Don't make excuses for our sin. Don't try to manage sin. See, our natural tendency with sin is to hide it. Control it. Keep it below the surface, he says. And, and, and so, what did Adam and Eve do? You look at Genesis. I mean, they, they, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They recognized their own nakedness. They were ashamed. And they heard God coming through the garden. What did they do? They hid. Our tendency with sin is to hide. And they hid from God. They went and they hid. And then, and then they tried to like make some sort of leafy garment situation. To cover their, their shame. And, and, and this is so true with sin. Sin is like mold. It, it just thrives in darkness. It thrives and it, and it grows. And when it's left untreated, it can be deadly and it will be deadly. But the way we deal with sin is the same way we deal with mold. We drag it into the light. We drag it into the light. Psalm 32, 5, David says, Finally, I confessed my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. And I said to myself, I'll confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. Now here's, that's an interesting phrase because so often we think when we bring our sin before God, then you shamed me. Look at what you've done. We expect the opposite to happen, but rather it's the shame from hiding sin that brings all that upon us. But when we bring and confess our rebellion to God, he says, and then you forgave me and all of my guilt is gone. When we bring sin into the light is where it dies. So, so then Paul goes on to actually list some fin- sinful nature things here. So what are they? And he actually really conveniently kind of puts them categorically. So we'll kind of group them into groupings here. So he starts off here again in verse 5, continuing on. He says, Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. So this first section is the awkward one we don't often like to talk about, but it's about sexual sin, and it's probably, however, one of the most common that are wrestled with. Sexual immorality, he says, impurity, lust, evil desires. So you might say, well, what what are we talking about here? What actually constitutes sexual sin? What's What's that involve? What's that include? What do we call sin? What do we call, I don't know, something else? And so... Paul, actually, this isn't the only place he talks about it. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in his first letter to the Corinthian church, he talks about it in chapter 6, verse 15. He says, Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. 
Now, a lot of us in this room could probably say, got it, don't have sex with prostitutes, check. Most of us would say that's not a huge issue. And I'm, I'm glad. But verse 16 says, if you join your bodies together in this intimacy, you become united into one. This is an interesting phrase because it is verbatim to what Jesus talks about in Mark chapter 10 when he's talking about a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And he says, what God has brought together, let no man separate, that these two shall become one flesh. And he's referring back to the book of Genesis and this idea of marriage. And so what we can draw from this and what becomes so evident is that if you are in a sexually active relationship, prostitute or not, any sexually active relationship that is outside the scope of marriage that Jesus is talking about, someone that is not your husband or your wife, you are in sexual sin. It's so clear. If you're in a sexually active relationship with someone that's not your husband or wife, you're in sexual sin. To take it a step further, you might say, that's really harsh. Oh, wait, Jesus has got more. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is talking to the, to, to, to the uh, people that are asking questions about divorce. And he says, you've heard the commandment that says don't commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone that even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus ups the ante. He says, it's not just about sleeping with prostitutes. It's not just about intercourse outside of marriage. He says, I'm telling you that your eyes, if your eyeball is causing you to sin, it'd be better to pop that bad boy out and go to heaven half blind than to go to hell with great vision. And that's, of course, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, gratefully. We'd have a lot of people walking into walls. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here, but he's expressing the level of commitment that we need to have in dealing with our sin. How seriously are you ready to deal with your sin? Pornography is one of the greatest lies of the devil. He would want you to believe that it's a victimless sin, that it's something of little or no consequence, that it's just between you and your your computer screen or your phone screen. It's of no consequence, but that is a lie. It's a lie that corrupts trust in relationships. It cheapens intimacy. It kills love. Let me tell you, Jesus says, if you're lusting with your eye, it'd be better to pop out an eye. And he's, of course, speaking that hyperbole. But if you're continually falling victim to this kind of thing, it's time to remove some eyes. Here's what I mean. You need to maybe remove some places that are causing you and giving you the chance to sin. Maybe it's time that you don't have computer access when you're alone. Move that computer down to a common area of the house. Maybe it's time for you to add accountability partners. There's so much software out there enabling men and, and, and people to say, you know what, I'm not walking alone. I want people to have my back. It's not about having uh, someone on my shoulder shaming me, but saying we are going to do this together. We are going to overcome this together. Perhaps if that's not right for you or maybe you just don't have even still have the, the self-control, it's time to get one of those jitterbug phones that you see advertised on Jeopardy, you know, where all it can do is call and text. Can I tell you, if Jesus was alive today, I think he may say, it's better to go to heaven with a jitterbug phone than to go to hell with an iPhone 14. (laughs) Sexual sin is one of the things that we want to steal our eye discipline from heavenly things. Moving on to verse 5. Don't be greedy. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Whoa. 
Don't be greedy. This is interesting. Greed isn't, is idolatry, Paul says. You know, if you were to pull out a dollar bill or a $20 bill or a quarter, you'd see something stamped on it and it says, in God we trust, right? I was thinking about this while I was writing my message. I thought, I think for a lot of us, what it actually says on that is, in this God I trust. You may say, I, I, he's talking about greed. I'm kind of off the hook on this one, and I'm glad because I'm, I'm, I'm not wealthy. I'm not a greedy person because I don't got nothing. But, but uh, let me be honest here. Being a rich miser, it, you might say, is not a problem, but that's a misconception. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. Sometimes we take ourselves off the hook there because we're like, have you seen my bank account? Not greedy. But our approach to money and how we handle it is reflected here. Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon, I mean, the guy had a, a pretty good checkbook. And he wrote this, he says, Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. The more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. I like, uh, have you ever watched those things where the person wins the lottery and they come in like one of those Halloween masks? They don't want any family to know that they won. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? It's like trying to hold sand. If you want to live an unfulfilled life, he's saying, be greedy. You'll never have enough. You'll never be content. So what, what, what's going on here is Paul saying having money is wrong? Of course not. Not even having a lot of money is wrong. But when money becomes the thing from which we build our security, when money becomes the source from which we draw joy, when money becomes the means from which we draw our identity, it has then become our master. In Matthew 6, 24, it says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and you'll love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus says you can't serve God and be enslaved to money. Has money become your God? Greed is not a marker of a follower of Jesus. Rather, followers of Jesus are marked by generosity. As, as a matter of fact, I looked it up. A Washington Times article reported, reported that 62% of religious households gave to charity while only 46% of non-religious households did. 64, 62 to 46%. As a total, religious households donate almost 44% more to charity. Isn't that incredible? We see that marker in a Christian life. It's not because uh, they're, they're forced to or anything like that, but there is just something about being a Christ follower that compels us to be generous. And... Uh, it, while I like to say that, I need to caution us because I think we're really losing sight of that as a Christian people. Um, I was also reading in the same article, it said that um, currently among Christians, two, uh, cu- currently among Christians, it, um, they give on average 2.5% of their income to charity. 2.5%. But during the Great Depression, they gave 3.3% to charity. There's a shift that's happened. Stepping away from this generosity. I apologize for stumbling over that statistic because I didn't put it in my notes. I thought, oh, now I'm going to add that. That was a good point. But just as greed isn't exclusive to the wealthy, right? I said you don't have to be rich to be, to be greedy. But just in that same way, neither is generosity. Jesus marveled at the gift of the widow, right? She literally only had two coins to rub together. 
And she gave that, and Jesus was more marveled at what she gave than the lavish gifts of the financial elites that were around, pouring in their money. You see, God doesn't just look, to, look at the gift, He looks at the giver. He, he sees the heart of the giver. Generosity. Life marked by generosity. Paul continues in verse 7. Let's continue on. He says, You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger and rage Malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. So this last grouping that Paul puts there, I would really kind of categorize as actions through speech, the things we say, right? Most of these things you would say, anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, dirty language, lying. These are things that we speak. They're things that come out through our language, Things we say when we're angry, when we're sparked with rage, words that are intended to tear people down, defamatory speech, meant to wound people, statements that are meant to deliberately deceive other people, obscene language. I've uh, prayed with people in our congregation that have said, Pastor Brent, I've looked at my life and I see I'm using words on the job, words around my family, words around other friend groups that don't line up with what I profess when I'm here on Sundays, and I want to change. Recognizing that there's an inconsistency to what I profess, and, and, and the Bible says that a tongue is a barometer for what's living on the inside. The tongue, out of the overflow of the what? The mouth speaks. The heart. Out of the overflow of our hearts, the mouth speaks. And so the recognition of I need consistency inside, reflecting on what's on the outside. And then, moving on, looking back at verse 9, I actually... If, you wouldn't, if you're there already, um, oh, you are. You're awesome, Sandy. Thank you. Verse 9, I put in bold here. He uses a phrase, he uses the words here. He says, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature. You've stripped it off. Paul uses this illustration of clothing. You've stripped off your old sinful nature. And so this is the last point that we have today. And that is that we need to dress the part. Dress the part. He goes on with this illustration. Um, see if you can count the number of references to dress or clothing as we continue on. So already in verse 9 he says um, that, that we have stripped off the old sinful nature. But moving on in verse 10 then. So that's one. It says, but put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Wow. Alright, let's get the count. How many did we get? I caught about four. Who got four? Raise a, raise a hand. Did anyone get more than four? Maybe you can read extra into the Bible. I don't know. I, got, I caught four times there that he refers to the idea of removing clothing or putting on clothing. And so, as I mentioned before, in Paul's letters, he has a system, right? He gives practical, uh, after giving systematic instruction, he gives practical application and, and instructions on how we're actually to live this out. 
And this, what we just read here in chapter 3, a lot of this, you could actually find verbatim in Ephesians chapter 5. This list is almost exactly what you find in Ephesians chapter 5, but there's something unique, and that is this idea of removing clothing and putting on clothing. You don't see that in Ephesians 5. So why would he tell the church in Philippi that they need to think about it in this idea in particular? Who can recall to week one when we talked about what the main export of Colossae was? Cloth. Red cloth. It was dyed wool called uh, Colossinus. And, and the, they were in the textiles industry. They knew fashion. At the same time, Colossae sat at this uh, meeting point of cultures. It sat right there uh, on the end of Turkey, right next to Greece. It was part of the Roman Empire. You had the Silk Road coming in from China. You had, you had uh, the Jewish influence. You had um, this, this, other, uh, this other group of people that, were, that he lists called the Scythians, which uh, in, in the NIV and other translations they list instead of calling them uncivilized, it's Scythians. And this group was living there. And so... When they viewed clothing, when Paul started giving this illustration of clothing, this would have been a really important part of their context because clothing was emblematic. Clothing was, your identity was tied to your clothes. Uh, today, uh, it's not so much the case. A lot of celebrities and wealthy elites, um, they dress like everyday people. In a lot of ways, unless they're on the red carpet or something like that. Every once in a while, you see like Adam Sandler shooting hoops in like really ratty um, Adidas or something like that. Um, but uh, uh, you see like you watch P- uh, TMZ or see on People Magazine, people walking down the street and they're wearing normal clothes. Now, they might look normal, but their shirt probably costs more than my truck, honestly. But, uh, but they dress fairly normal, right? They don't want to stand out. They don't want to look different in a lot of those ways unless they're on their red carpet or doing something like that. But in the first century, your clothes told your story. In the first century, you, what you wore was literally who you were. Um, in Roman society, there was actually a felt cap. I, oh man, I enjoyed doing this study because I, I came across a, a doctoral thesis that was written by a lady going to seminary in Australia. And I didn't read it all because it was hundreds of pages long, but it was specifically on this section of, of, of Philippians on clothing and what it meant to them and how it actually applied. And one of the things that, that you can see here, this, this gentleman here is wearing a, a special hat called a, a pilisus. And this pilisus is a felt cap that was worn, it was red, and it was worn by freed slaves, emancipated slaves. And so in Roman society, if someone saw you wearing this hat, they knew that person is a free man. That person is a free woman. It, it actually spoke to your status. Um, clothing told your gender. It told your ethnic origin. It told your political status. It told your ideologies. Um, as a matter of fact, where, where Colossae sat with, like, as, he, as I said, with all of these different societies coming together, you would know someone as Roman because of the toga they wore. It was a specific type, different than the Greek. And it, it, uh, it would wear, they'd have stripes on it to show their rank and their status in society. Um, the Scythians, as I mentioned just before, that Paul lists here, he's these were considered uncivilized people. They were actually a nomadic tribe that rode horses around, and they were from up north. And, uh, and instead of wearing tunics and things like that because they rode horses, they would actually wear trousers and leggings. And so you'd know a Scythian from a Greek, you'd know a Greek from a Roman, you'd know the Jews from anyone else. All these clothes separated people. And so it's for a reason that Paul lists these people groups in here, talking about these clothing pieces. And then he just says this, it's not that God doesn't see or care about these distinctives, because then he says, there is no... Right? He says, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew, there is no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, civilized, slave-free. He says, there is none. Is he saying these don't matter? Absolutely not. Paul is saying, 
in all of this, in all of this, it's not saying that God doesn't say it doesn't matter that you have distinctives of culture and ethnicity, but the gospel supersedes all of these things. The gospel goes above all of these things. He says, the thing you should be clothed in, the thing that identifies who you are, should be these things. And then he goes on to list tender-hearted mercy. He says, you need to be clothed in kindness. You need to be clothed in humility. You need to be clothed, clothed in gentleness. You need to be clothed in patience. You need to be clothed in forgiveness. And he says, above all, be clothed in love. And Paul goes through this list, and I was like, man, this list sounds really familiar. Where have I heard this? It's the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of the fruit of the Spirit there found in Galatians. And these these that that Paul lists there, these fruit of the Spirit are not just our good deeds. It's not just our our good intentions. It's not our, our efforts at being a good person. But they're things that are produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You see, that's so so clear as Paul talks about in the first chapters. It's not about our own effort at being a good person. I'm gonna try to be humble. And the more humble I am, the better I feel about myself being humble. And then I lose that humility. Trying to be a kinder person. Trying to just work out. And then we just become moralists. Trying to find enough moral goodness and footing. But rather it's the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Changing out that sinful nature. Taking off those robes and putting on the robes of holiness. And Paul is tying all of this together. He's warned them. He's warned them about mysticism. He's warned them about asceticism and legalism. But now Paul says... If Jesus is really who I say he is, he's preeminent above all creation. He is God. He is not just a a creation of God, but he himself is God. Then he must be preeminent in your life too, church. It should be perceptible. People should be able to look at you and say, I see the different clothes you're wearing. I see there's something different on you. Uh, Fashion designer Rachel Zoe, I have no idea who they are, but they said this. Style is a way to say who you are without having to speak. When someone sees you, there should be evidence of a different kind of clothing that you don't have to expressly say, but they see it. It should be a reflection of your identity in Christ. We should be able to look at another believer and say, I think you're a follower of Jesus. I can see that in you. I can see that reflected. I uh, was in the airport in San Francisco several months ago, and I went to a really small university, and I saw someone wearing a Vanguard University shirt, and there was like an immediate kinship, at least on my part. They looked a little uncomfortable, but I was like, oh, wow, we're like the same. And they were looking for the security button, you know, it was... But there's a kinship, there's, there's seeing something, you're like, oh, I, I see that in you, and, and there's this, this immediate... Uh, being drawn to this this likeness and so the question we need to ask ourselves then is have i taken off the sinful nature and have i put on the new have i really let the outside begin to reflect what god has done on the inside have i been changed but do i continue to wear around the old dead self on the outside allowing sin and greed and anger sexual immorality things I say, they're telling a different story than what God has done on the inside. So church, today, let me say today is fashion week. What are you wearing? What are you wearing? Is what I'm presenting consistent with what Christ has done in me? 
What in my life do I need to allow the Holy Spirit to remove? What do I need the Holy Spirit to develop in me? Because this is a process of sanctification the Bible talks about. It's a process of being made more and more like Jesus. I wish there was just a switch we could throw and we're like, perfection! But there's a process of daily. See, that's the thing. There's a rhythm and there's a, there's a ritual to clothes, right? I would hope that every day we take off clothes and then the next day we put on new clothes. There's a, there's a rhythm to that. So this week, what do I need to take off? What do I need to actually intentionally, thoughtfully say, I am removing this. I am, I am having discipline. I discipline on heavenly things. I'm going to be thoughtful in recognizing the sinful nature I'm removing and putting on the righteousness of God. This week, what do I need to take off? What do I need to put on? So right now, what we're going to do is our connection cards. And we're going to respond through our connection cards, okay? And this is going to be an honesty moment. There's going to be, I can tell you, I, I promise that there's going to be, um, uh, we will not share this with anyone. This is, this is uh, a private thing. But on your connection card, I want to know what I can be praying with you about, what our staff can be praying with you about, on what you need to take off. And you're saying, Holy Spirit, I need you to help me put on fruit of the spirit where do i need to see these things grow in my life what do i need to see develop in my life so right now let's take out our phones let's take out uh the this paper if you want to do the paper one in the seat backs we've got the uh the qr code that's in the upper left corner right there you can just take your phone and aim it right there but right now we're all going to do our connection cards together if this is your first time let us know it's your first time also in that comment section if you would like to serve in, a, in children's ministry, if you're, or you're interested, you just want information, let us know in that section. So right now, let's do our connection cards together. And in the section where it asks you to share your story or share a testimony or prayer, what I want you to answer right now is this. This week, what do I need to take off? And what do I need to put on? bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Lord, you told us that as we look into the reflection of your word, that we should not forget what we see. Only a fool does that. But we should take it and apply it. And right now, I pray that we would have the courage to face the man or the woman we saw in that reflection, what we're wearing. Perhaps we've seen a lot of greed that's been holding on. Perhaps we've seen a lot of sexual immorality. And it's been holding on. Perhaps it's the words we've been saying that have been tearing people down, that have been dishonest, that have been not full of life, and it's been holding on, and that is what we need to remove. Lord, I pray for the courage to face those things, but then by the power of your Spirit, Lord, I pray that we would remove those things and put on the fruit of the Spirit that love would bind all these things together, that joy would mark our lives, that we would see tender-hearted mercy, mercy that comes from the bowels of who we are, kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness developing in our lives as followers of Jesus, that we would be recognizable, that we would stand, stand apart, that we would not just be someone that's just your everyday average Joe, but God, that we would stand out in a lost and dying world as people of hope. God that our lives would be a testimony that it would speak what words can't speak in the way we live we thank you Jesus 
in your name. Amen. Amen. This morning, before we close, I want to give this opportunity. This hasn't been exactly a a message explaining what following Jesus means and what he did for us, but I always want to give this opportunity. So right now, before we close, I know we just finished bowing our heads, but can we bow for one more moment? And I want to give this opportunity. If you have never given your life to Jesus, I want to give you that chance. You see, we all have sinned. We just talked about things that we need to remove. Let me tell you, there's no one in this room, not one person sitting in one of these chairs has lived a perfect life. Every one of us have sinned. And the Bible tells us that that sin separates us from God. We become God's enemies when we sin. Not because God hates us, but because sin cannot exist with a perfect God. And that separated us from Him. And what we got through that is death. Our sentence is death. But the good news is that Jesus came for us. He came to take our place. He died in our place so that we don't have to live in sin anymore. We don't have to live under the condemnation of sin, but have new life in Jesus because he died in our place. He took our sin upon himself. And now when we stand before God, he doesn't see our sinful, imperfect selves, but he sees the perfection of Jesus on us. So this morning, if you need to be covered by Jesus' forgiveness, you want to stand right before God so that one day, when you stand before Him, you can say, I'm right before you, God, because of what Jesus Jesus did in my heart. And if that's you, and you want to give your heart to Christ and say, He is my Lord and He is my Savior, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, raise your hand and raise it high. I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Yes, you can put your hands down. Right now, church, we're going to pray this together as we go. Repeat after me. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and forgiving me. You came to save me. And I accept your forgiveness. I make you my King and my Lord. I will no longer live life on my terms, but by your terms. Jesus, I choose to follow you from this day forward your name. Amen. Amen. The Bible tells us that heaven celebrates. Heaven celebrates that moment. So we celebrate together that God has done a good thing. Church, let's stand together. Let's stand together. Father, I pray over your church this week as we go forward. I thank you for what Paul lists in verse 15 where he says we are then to always be thankful. We are thankful for your word that is good. We are thankful for the the things that you have done, that you have brought this church community, community together to walk together, to grow together, to edify one another, to love one another. I pray this week that we would have our eyes on heavenly things and always be thankful for all that you've done, the good that you pour out over us, unmerited blessings that you give us, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, for all your promises. And all together, God's people say, amen, amen. God bless you, New Life Church.